Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Telegraph. Podcasts. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Line Trust, specialist fund managers. Hi there, podcast fans, and welcome to Total Football. Tom Gibbs here, fresh from a ride on the podcast presenter merry-go-round and delighted to return to your ears and the Premier League analysis arena. Coming up, we'll unpick the weekend in the top flight, which included the game of the season at Ashburton Grove, an impressive win for the increasingly impressive Chelsea, but less positive work from Spurs. Also, some football from teams outside of London. We'll speak to Chelsea's Fran Kirby to talk about a couple of misfiring forwards and who she thinks will emerge first from their funk. And we'll reflect on the World Cup draw for Russia 2018, which provided England's most straightforward group since status quo. But first, I'm joined in the studio by The Telegraph's football news correspondent, Matt Law. Matt Law, how are you? Very well, thank you. Uh, It would be perverse to begin anywhere other than Arsenal 1, Manchester United 3, a tremendous game. If you were following this match on a live score app and hadn't watched it, you'd think, oh, this is another kind of Arsenal failure against one of the big teams. But that wasn't really the story on this occasion, was it? I think it was. Oh, Tell me why. They once again failed to beat a big team and they once again failed to defend properly. I'm I'm possibly in the minority. I'm I'm not having all this business of weren't Arsenal excellent, weren't Arsenal brilliant. Yes, they attacked well, but their defence was abysmal. Um I mean the way they all flooded over and left Valencia on his own for that first goal so early in the game was was schoolboy. And I just found it interesting at the end that, you know, Mourinho patted them on the head having covered Mourinho for years at Chelsea, if he starts patting you on the head and saying, what a good job you did and didn't you play well, you know he's he's had you. Because he knows a, you know he doesn't think you're a threat and you know he's had you because he's he only ever does that in those circumstances. For Mourinho, that was the perfect, perfect scenario. And I've actually seen Arsenal go through that years back against Man United before Ferguson used to do it year after year. Just let Arsenal have the ball, let them create chances, go up the other end and score your chances and come away with a 2 or 3-0 victory. And it just, just reeked of that for me. So I'm just not having it. Arsenal were great. They weren't. Obviously, there was some criminal defending in the opening 10 minutes. But there does come a point where you can say you can't really legislate for the sort of game it was and the sort of saves that De Gea made, where you can't you can't accuse them of, of bottling it in the way they have in previous games. Yeah, bottling it would be would be the wrong way to put it. I, I don't think it's that different to previous games where they they just don't take their chances and they let the other team take theirs and and give them chances. I mean, sure, De Gea was was superb, and that one save particular when he he stopped it from Lacazette and then got up and managed to stop it with his feet from Sanchez was just unbelievable. Um, Such strong wrists, De Gea. Whatever the opposite of Poppadom wrists is, he just seems to get his hands to things that other keepers wouldn't uh, and pump them out. He does, and he he kind of gets himself behind the ball from from weird angles and and manages to claw it out. And then, as I was just saying, I mean, just to get back and get your foot watching the the replays of it yesterday, just to try and get your foot back into that position. I, I genuinely don't know how you do it. He was phenomenal. 
um, and, and probably rightly hailed as the best goalkeeper in the world at the moment. Going back to Jose Mourinho and his head patting, do we think he doesn't respect Arsenal given the way he approached the game and comparing that to how he approached the Liverpool game by trying to shut it down? He was United were at them from the start. The pressing was great for the first two goals. Yeah, I... I... <laughs> I don't think he does respect them in terms of a genuine threat, whereas I think he probably sees Liverpool as more a genuine threat. He'd look at Liverpool as a team who can who can actually take his team apart a little bit, um, whereas with Arsenal, I, I think he, he'd have been pretty confident with his game plan that they could go there and win that. I mean, it probably went a little bit better than he expected it to because Arsenal's run at home had been really, really good. Um but it's it's just funny with Jose. Once he starts praising you, you know you're out you're out of it, and it's a bad sign. Put it that way. You want him at you, and you want him at your throat because then you know you're winding him up and getting under his skin. Good knowledge. Pogba red, very ugly for United. Will his suspension for the derby trigger a less exciting approach for them? Do you think? Possibly. It's it's a blow. It's a blow for that game because that that's just looking more and more like the, the one game where you think maybe the title race can can be opened up again um if City win that it it really does look difficult and you would like it to be as a neutral the best 11 versus best 11 little bit of karma in this though Pogba completely out of order at the weekend for saying that he hopes some of Manchester City's best players get injured so that United can get them so there's a nice little bit of karma that Pogba will miss that match yeah I mean he's just taking it into his own hands by trying to injure Arsenal players (laughs) Uh, a lot of talk about Ozil before the game and potentially going to United Mourinho not doing much to play that down in the lead up who does he replace in that lineup? and do you see it working for him there if he went to Old Trafford oh he's I mean Mourinho, him and Mourinho like each other a lot I mean they, they had a happy spell together at Real Madrid um, Mourinho sees the number 10 position as a as a problem position for him um, I think it's a funny one I don't think he the way I've seen Ozil play for, for a few years over in England, I wouldn't have him down as, as particularly a Mourinho yeah, player. If Joe Cole wound him up doing the odd step over in 2004, yeah, like, you can't quite, really see Ozil getting on with him. Exactly, and you know the, the tracking back and all that business. But Mourinho's worked with him before, so he, know, he must know all about that and he must think he can get a tune out of him. I mean, it would be highly ironic in a way if he, if he went to Man United and all of a sudden started doing all the things that he, he doesn't do at Arsenal and, and you'd then have to question the management rather than the player. Moving on to the game you were at on Saturday, Matt. Chelsea 3, Newcastle 1. Very similar feel for this for Newcastle. Their defeat at Man United a few weeks ago took an early lead through Dwight Gale, but just couldn't build on that. They started really well. Um, first 15 minutes, Chelsea was sloppy and, and Newcastle were at it at the first 15 minutes and they they looked like they, they were there to compete. Um, but it was worrying for them that as soon as they scored, not not as soon as they conceded, but as soon as they scored... They almost just switched off. I mean, that that for them was as good as it was going to get. What did that look like? Not pressing as much, dropping deeper? Dropping deeper, not pressing, but just panicking as well. That All of a sudden, it, it was almost as though they went one up and, and didn't have any belief that they were going to hold on to this whatsoever. And there were a good few chances um, before Chelsea actually equalised. And from the minute then they equalised, it was just how many it was going to be. And, and second half in particular, Newcastle were not in the game. Um, and it became the Eden Hazard show. Yeah, just absolutely glorious from Hazard for most of that match. It's been a while since we've had aggressive rumours linking him with a move. Do you think he's happy at Chelsea for the foreseeable? I I, I do, actually. Um, it, uh, one of the most underplayed transfers of the summer was um, 
Chelsea signing Killian Hazard, not Torgan, who they had and, and let go, but they signed Killian Hazard. He's not a kid, he's about 22. I've never seen a more clear case of a club signing a player to try and keep another player because Eden was extremely happy, I'm told, that Killian joined him there and things are looking good for him. And I think he he genuinely, he's 26 um, and I think he genuinely thinks that for at least another couple of years he can do what he wants to do at Chelsea. Obviously, if Real Madrid came in with a stupid bid, it would give everyone to, something to think about. But there actually hasn't been any sign of that for a little while. David Luiz out of the squad again for Chelsea, but with an injury at the moment. What's the story with him at the moment at Chelsea? Yeah, it's a funny one with him. It's It's got a little whiff of Costa about it. Um, around the Champions League games against Roma, he had a couple of rows with Conte. First of all, after the home game that they drew, he got substituted in it. Conte didn't like his reaction got and gave him a ticking off for it. Then ahead of the game out there, there was some very odd things going on in terms of team meetings and players requesting tactical reshuffles, which I think David Luiz was, was the guy communicating to Conte. And Conte didn't appreciate it at all. Um, they got thrashed in Rome, came back and had a big team meeting in which he, he went mad at them and he, he didn't like David Luiz's reaction in that. And he's he's kind of persona non grata since. I mean, he, he has got a legitimate injury now. He's got fluid on the knee, which could keep him out for a little while, but he wouldn't be in the starting 11 for the, the sort of big games were he to be fit now. And it's starting to look like he could he could be on his way out, whether it be January or, or more likely the summer, but it's starting to look main, maybe like it's a slow way out for maybe him. Maybe PSG will buy him back for even more and he'll just keep doing <laughs> that for the rest of his career. Looking at Chelsea's next six games, West Ham away, Huddersfield away, Southampton at home, Everton away, Brighton at home, Stoke at home. They're all winnable, aren't they? Do we expect them to emerge now as the closest challengers to City? Well, they, that's, that's what they've got to try and do. They've won six in their last seven um, drawing one at, at Liverpool. So they're on a good run as it is. Um, and they've got to... I mean, the way City are going, you'd have to say they've got to win all those games um, and then potentially hope that even if City just draw a couple somewhere, that they can actually gain some ground on them. But they're, they're going to have to do that. I actually I still think um, that Chelsea will end up being second and the best of the rest, yeah. They look that way at the moment. But Liverpool also very impressive. 5-1 at Brighton on Saturday. It seemed too easy for Liverpool this match. Brighton were really sort of standing off them and sitting very deep. What do you think is the best way to play against the bigger clubs when you're a newly promoted home side like Brighton? It's a really difficult question. That do you is. just have to eat it sometimes and just accept you're going to be turned over in, in some of these games? Yeah, I, I definitely think you have to accept in a few you will get turned over and not try and let it kind of ruin everything else you're doing and almost just shrug it off. Um, I, I think, again, you have to judge it by, by the teams. I mean, there's, there's certainly... No point against Liverpool. Well, I say that. Against Liverpool, you would think you can score a goal. Um, but you need to, to sit very, 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 very kind of deep to try and deal with, with their strikers. So it's a really tough balancing act. I suppose, you know, you, you go down the Tony Pulis School of Management and sit as deep as you can and try and nick one from a free kick or something like that. It's tricky, but I mean... Huddersfield did a really good job um, with Manchester City a couple of weeks ago and, and nearly got something. So it's achievable. If, if, if you get it right on the day and things fall into place for you on the day, you, you, you can 
I mean, Huddersfield didn't get a result, but you can certainly go close to getting a result and, and compete with them. That's it, though, isn't it? It has to be the day you've got to accept that you've got to expect. Uh, the only way you're going to have a chance against these teams is if they're having a slightly off. Day. Oh yeah, you've got to be you've got to be hundred percent, and you've got to hope that they're they're having an off day. Certainly. Wonderfully cheeky free kick under the wall from Philip Coutinho. You've got to love that rare moment of invention from a free kick. But then Klopp said afterwards it was all the work of his analyst uh, who'd noticed that Brighton's wall always jumps for free kicks. Is spontaneity dead in football? It probably is, actually. There's more of that going on than we think, isn't there? Yeah, the the amount of work that goes into um, analysis and looking at the opposition and looking at every little bit of what they do I mean, it, it's really frightening, the, the stats they have on it and, and the video work they do now. And penalties, free kicks, everything like that, they will all know exactly what they did in the last match, exactly which way the goalkeeper normally goes, exactly which way the penalty taker would normally go. And I completely believe, Klopp, that they've an analyst has looked at that and said, hit it low, they jump every time. Completely believe them. It's funny, actually, because I think... Hazard was asked after the Chelsea game when he, he took the panicker, you know, are you going to do that again? And and he, he kind of said almost, well, you, I can't really do that again because, you know, the next goalkeeper is just going to stand up, aren't they? Mind games. Up at Goodison Park, it was a surprisingly warm welcome for Sam Allardyce, uh, whose new Everton team turned over Huddersfield 2-0. Isn't Sam Allardyce due a club that really takes him to his heart? He's, he's got an outstanding record. He's improved basically everyone other than Newcastle. Yeah, he has got an outstanding record. I think the problem... Is not Sam Allardyce's fault for him at Everton. It's the owner and what he's been selling to Everton fans in terms of their ambition and, and what they're trying to do. And rightly or wrongly, and probably wrongly and unfairly, Sam Allardyce is seen as this sort of, you know, fireman Sam type character who comes in and rescues teams, um, which he's doing at Everton because they're in that, that situation. Um, but... Mashiri has been telling the Everton fans for a little while now that, you know, we're aiming for the stars, we're we're going to try and, you know, go go for the top four. And, and Koeman's appointment was very much, you know, billed as a Hollywood appointment for them. So to go straight back the other way um, will be difficult for a few to stomach. But I think I think in the short term it's the, the right appointment. I fear that in 12 months' time we might have them saying, well, great, he, he kept us up and now we need to go and get another Hollywood name. Um just on Everton, though, I'd, I would like to say I'm really, really impressed with Calvert-Lewin mm. there. I think yeah. he's all through their terrible spell that they've had. He's one of the few um, who's actually stood up and, and carried on playing well. He's had to lead the line on his own most of the time. Yeah, took his goal very well. Lovely pass from Wayne Rooney for that goal, who also scored from his own half earlier in the week. Is he back? No. <laughs> <laughs> He'll have these... Look, he's 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 been a wonderful player and... Clearly, he still has his talent, so he's going to have these moments and he'll have good runs, but he's he's not back as a consistent force, no. Seems fair enough. Two clean sheets for Everton in their last two games. They're up to 10th. Alan Pardew, also in charge of a new club. His first game was against his former club, Crystal Palace, managed by a former manager of his new club, Roy Hodgson, West Brom, the Hawthorns. Excitement, nil-nil. But is Alan Pardew a good appointment for West Brom? Uh, yeah, I think for what they want, I think he is because they've they've become. I was at West Brom for the the Chelsea game, and that I was surprised at how annoyed they had become with Pulis and the his fans. style. Yeah, and his style of football. Um, and Pardew, whatever you think of Pardew, he's a bubbly guy. He lifts places. There's a 
a fun mood about places with Pardew. It often eventually goes wrong when he starts getting quite full of himself. Does but, that sort of thing go a long way in job interviews when you're a manager? The chairman's like seeing that sort of thing from a manager. I don't know. I mean, I, I think what will have worked in his favour with West Brom is certainly is that they'll have been looking for almost the opposite to Tony Poulis. Um, and, and Pardew probably is as quite far opposite to Tony Poulis, completely different character. And he, I think he will he will get the place kind of more optimistic and more fun-loving almost for a while. Um, that goatee beard, though, that's that's a shocker, isn't it? That's a re- I mean, he's quite David Brent anyway, and, and putting the goatee on top of it really does just top off the, the Brent factor. I can't criticise anyone for their beard. It would be deeply hypocritical. Tottenham Hotspur now down to six after a one-all draw at Watford on Saturday. They're 18 points behind mm. City now. What do you think is to blame for their downturn? They look tight. They're starting games really poorly. They're starting really, really slowly. Um, They keep conceding early goals um, and they look tired to me. Eriksen looks tired, who had been playing superbly. Ali hasn't really been at it all season. Ali's, Ali's a bit of a funny one lately and I don't know whether him, whether it's tiredness or whether there's other things going on. He's been moved around the pitch a little bit by Pochettino to try and get his form going from being very far forward to trying and dropping him back in the number eight and then back forwards again. Um, They miss what I've always felt they've missed for a while in terms of being title challengers is they miss just a little bit of spark. They miss a player who can go one-on-one against a player who can create a little bit of magic out of nowhere. I know they were trying to sign Wilf Sahar for a while. They've been interested in Barkley, who obviously has been injured for a long time, but you can see kind of why they're looking at those kind of players who might not be consistently top players but can just produce something out of nowhere because I think they lack that. They're a bit predictable. And another thing I looked at on Tottenham recently, and I think this is still right, is out the top six, um, they have got the worst record for impact off the bench. I think they've got one goal and one assist off the bench this season, which is a lot worse than the rest of the top six, which... I don't think they've got bad players on the bench. You know, you've got people, whether Winks is playing or Moussa Dembele or, you know, you've got good players on the bench. You've got Winks or a Dembele and you've got now Lamella back. But they're not making an impact. They're not scoring a goal. They're not making assists. And they, they need that because when they're up against teams who are just sitting back, sitting back and they need a goal from somewhere, they need something off the bench sometimes. And it's not happened. It's not happened for Loriente at all. I still don't think he's scored at all for them. Another win for Man City, who came from behind again to see off West Ham 2-1. Much improved from West Ham. Joe Hart dropped for this one and Adrian in and looked impressive. Do you think he'll make the number one spot his own there now? I've always quite liked Adrian. He can be a little bit inconsistent, but I've, I've seen him play very well a lot. I, I, I think he's a decent goalkeeper. Um, I, I, I kind of thought in the summer that Joe, they were signing Joe Hart just because he was Joe Hart, really. They didn't, to me goalkeeper wasn't a, a position they were in desperate desperate need for and Joe Hart had had a, a pretty average season out in Italy and it, it just looked like they were signing him just because he was Joe Hart and that's kind of transpired a little bit he hasn't been very good Adrian's come in and done really well they play Chelsea now uh, next weekend and by all accounts you'd have thought they've got to keep Adrian in now and, and give him a go and that will put Joe Hart in a really tricky position if he ends up on the West Ham bench Finally, it was Stoke 2, Swansea 1, important win for Mark Hughes's team, but Paul Clement not looking entirely convincing at bottom of the league, Swansea. Is he next to go, do we think? Well, they've, they've been backing him so far. I mean, they, I think they got through about three or four managers last season. Um, 
And so I think they're desperate to actually give him long enough this this season in, in Clement. But they're gonna they're gonna have to change something. The key will be what I tend to find with these clubs is if they see that the other clubs who have changed managers do start to get a few results, they'll think, oh, well, we'll do that now because that's obviously how you do it. Um, but yeah, they're they're poor. I mean, they they don't score many goals. They they just don't. There's nothing there. Their summer business was bizarre. I thought. Um, what's gone on with Sanchez like he was supposed to be incredible yeah Sanchez I, I felt sorry for him actually I, I watched him uh, in the week uh, against Chelsea when he passed it to the uh, Carabao sponsor advertising hoarding which was red um, which Swansea were in there red awake it and you you laugh now but being there watching it and watching his reaction and getting dragged off at half time you felt sorry for him I mean it, it looked really bad there's obviously massive confidence issues with him and it's just not worked out at all and, and nothing really has worked out for Swansea. I'd, 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 I'd be surprised if he, whoever they get in is going to rescue them. They just look doomed to me. Tony Pulis circling with intent. Well, I think his, his proud record might go if he goes there so he, he might want to avoid that one. He does, he does pick and choose quite well, Pulis, both in terms of the clubs he takes over and when he leaves clubs so that he doesn't have a relegation on his CV. Smart man. <laughs> Not in his dress sense. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Lion Trust. Specialist investors who help you head towards your financial goals. Independent thinkers who have the courage of their convictions to make investment decisions. Remember, investments can fall as well as rise. Chelsea and England striker Fran Kirby joins us now to discuss striker woes. Fran, fair to say that both Harry Kane and Romelu Lukaku are failing to reach their extremely high standards at the moment. Is it inevitable that you go through these sorts of spells when goal scoring is your main job on the pitch? Yeah, definitely. I think ultimately you have to look at the chances that are being created for these players as well. It's not just a case of the strikers just not scoring. It's a case of what the team is building around them. Um, obviously, Harry Kane at Tottenham, you know, he's been prolific in the last season. So I think it was, he was due a, a drought, so to speak. I don't really think it's a drought, but, you know, it's also down to what's created around you and what options you have to actually score. I think, obviously, Lukaku played the other day and created some chances for his other teammates as well. And I think a lot of people just look at how many goals you're scoring rather than what you're actually creating for the team. Who are you more worried about on current form, Fran? Kane or Lukaku? Um... I probably would say Lukaku. I think Harry Kane, you know, we know he's going to score goals again eventually. I think, obviously, the way Man United are playing at the moment, you know, it does seem quite Mourinho-type-ish where, you know, they're, they're defending a lot, whereas Harry Kane is going to have the, the chances to probably score a few more at Tottenham. Obviously, got likes of Eriksen around him who's creating it. For Lukaku, obviously, Pogba being back is massive. I think it's going to create a lot more chances for him going forward. Um, but I'd probably say Lukaku, I'm a bit more worried about than Harry Kane. What about the return of Zlatan Ibrahimovic? Does that put more pressure on Lukaku? Yeah, he might he might be feeling a little bit of pressure, but I think obviously you know Zlatan has been out with a very very serious injury. That you know I think everyone's a bit surprised at how quickly he has come back into the game. You know it takes a long time to come back from that sort of injury, but yeah, he might be feeling a little bit of pressure. But Lukaku's a lot younger than Zlatan, you know, so I think he knows that no matter what happens, you know, Slatan at the end of the day will retire eventually and then hopefully he can then step up and, and score more goals than he is. You know, he started on fire, so I'm sure he's not dwelling too much on, on the missed chances at the moment. Hiya, Fran. Um, when you, as a striker, when you, you play for a manager who possibly puts defence before attack 
and will often, you know, try and try and stifle the opposition rather than send the team out to create lots of chances. Can can yeah. you get a little bit frustrated with with the manager and his tactics when you're you're playing under that sort of regime? Yeah, I mean, obviously, every striker wants as many opportunities as they can to put the ball in the back of the net. When whilst I was at Reading, you know, we had a very that kind of mindset when we did play against the top teams. You know, we're going to mm. defend, defend, and then we're just going to try and counter. And Fran, you have to get on the end of it and try and score. So it was it was frustrating for me, but I think ultimately. As a striker, if you do get on the end of it when you are playing so defensively, it does boost your confidence because you're like, okay, I was in the right position. I'm doing what the manager told me. But, you know, it can be frustrating, especially with the likes of the talent that Man United have at the moment. You know, you Mm. you wouldn't want to see them being so defensive. Um, But obviously it's something that Mourinho, you know, drilled into Chelsea while he was here. And now obviously going to Man United, you know, the players are trying to adapt to that system, even though they have such attacking-minded players, it's probably frustrating for them. Mm, I mean, with Lukaku, everyone always talks about his, his sort of bad record against the, the top clubs. I mean, do you think that's because he's played for Everton and is, is now playing under someone like Mourinho? Or do you think he does actually maybe lack just that little 1% that would make him be able to score against the, the really best teams? For what I've kind of seen from Lukaku, you know, he, he does miss that that, um, you know, that technique in and around the box to maybe just create something out of nothing. Yeah. I think a lot of strikers, you know, you look at the likes of Aguero, he could just make something happen without having to be put the ball on the plate. You know, Lukaku is so physically strong and he could smash a football when he's one-on-one with a goalkeeper and probably put it in the back of the net, but he can't really make something out of nothing. Yeah. Whereas I feel with Harry Kane, you know, he can score from outside the box, he can score with his head, he can score, you know, the, the goals that you probably wouldn't see coming. So... And I think also, like I said earlier, it's the chances that you're creating. I think when Man United play against, you know, the top teams, they do go so defensive. So he probably gets maybe one chance in the whole 90 minutes. Yeah. Um, and then obviously, if he's not putting that back in the back of the net, then everyone's saying he doesn't score against the big teams. But really, it's how the tactics is shaping, shaping up that game for him. Going back to Kane, Fran, do we think fitness is an issue for him at the moment? I wouldn't say fitness. I would probably say freshness. I think... You know, they play so many games, especially uh, he's picked up a little hamstring injury. But, you know, to come back in, you know, playing Champions League, playing Premier League games, you know, it is very strenuous on the body. So I'd probably say maybe freshness rather than his fitness levels. You know, he plays week in, week out in the Premier League for one of the best teams in the league. So I wouldn't say it's so much fitness. But obviously coming back from a hamstring injury, he might be trying to be protecting it a little bit, not trying to do too much. But, yeah, I, I wouldn't say fitness is really the main, the main problem. And how about you, Fran? How have you come out of difficult spells in your career in front of goal? Um, I think for me, you know, I've always tried to... If I'm not scoring, I'm trying to create. I think, obviously, at the moment, like I'd probably say, you know, I'm scoring, but I'm not actually scoring in play. You know, it's, it's more like penalties or the ball's getting put to me on a plate. So I'd probably say I try and then focus on what I'm creating on the, on the pitch, you know, if I'm getting assists, if I'm in the right places. So I think... You try and build your confidence in other ways rather than finding the back of the net. Um, I'd probably say that's one thing that I really, really focus on. And then I try and get my confidence in training, you know, extra shooting or in, in like when we're playing 11 v 11, I try and score as much as I can. Um, so, yeah, I'd probably say just trying to build confidence up in different ways rather than focusing entirely on if I'm going to score in every game I play in. Strikers, strikers are lying when they tell us that they don't mind if they don't score as long as the team wins, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, definitely, definitely. A lot of strikers, I think they would base their whole performance, especially for me, you know, I used to do it. I used to base my whole performance on whether I scored. So if I hadn't scored, but I got maybe three assists or, you know, the team won, I was disappointed in myself. 
So I think a lot of strikers do, especially now, you know, the pressure, like you say, like the people like Lukaku and Harry Kane, you know, how much pressure they're in. If they don't score, they've got the media going at them or the fans are going at them. But if they get three assists, no one thinks about that. Hmm. It's about whether they score or put the ball in the back of the net. No such issues for you at the moment, though, Fran. Two goals in two World Cup qualifiers. Looking forward to the next tournament with England? Yeah, I am. I think, obviously, it'll be nice now for the new manager to come in and, you know, take a reign of everything and, and you know, build the team back up. You know, we have probably been a bit in the middle of nowhere. We don't know what it's going to be like in two months. So I think it's been a bit of a limbo at the moment. But, yeah, I think, obviously, the team we've got, you know, with the youngsters coming through, it's really, really exciting to see the talent that hopefully we can put into into the next World Cup. And obviously, it not injured to the World Cup, I think the qualifiers leading into it as well. And Chelsea ladies have got Man City soon, haven't they? Yeah, we have them on Sunday. So that'll be a, be a good game. You, you're both unbeaten, is that right? Uh, yeah, both unbeaten in the league. Um, so yeah, it'll be Yeah, someone <laughs> someone I was speaking to at, at Chelsea last week was saying it's gonna be quite niggly that there's not a lot of love lost between Chelsea and, and Manchester City ladies. No, I think obviously because you know, over the last few years we probably have been the two best teams in the league. So it's always come down to, you know, our games on who wins the league. Hmm. So I don't think there's any love lost there, you know, it's obviously a lot of the girls play with each other at England, so you know everyone has to try and put that behind them and just focus completely on club. But I think everyone, you know, these are the types of games that you want to play in. You know, the ones that can make or break your season. Um, so yeah, it's going to be exciting. Excellent. Good luck for that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> good luck for that, Fran, and good luck with England. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. We now have our groups for the 2018 World Cup after Friday's draw in sunny Moscow. The Telegraph Sports News correspondent Ben Rumsby is on the line now to join us in a rendition of Three Lions. But first, Ben, Belgium, Tunisia and Panama for England. Gareth Southgate will be delighted with this group. I'm not sure he could have got a better draw than he got. Some people will say that Russia and perhaps Poland were easier draws than Belgium. But if you actually think about what England are looking to achieve in Russia and and, and maybe even beyond, actually having a group in which the two so-called easiest teams come first and then Belgium come third, and then a last 16 match against the group that Poland are in, I think, really, England, if they've got anything about them, have every chance of of reaching a quarterfinals this time. Yeah, Poland, Senegal, Colombia and Japan are the potential second-round opponents. Do you think Southgate is targeting the quarters as a minimum? Well, he said that he wouldn't accept a quarterfinal, you know, which is obviously extremely ambitious given England's performances at recent tournaments. He will only accept elimination at the round of 16. (laughs) Uh, Well, we we will see how England do. Um, It's really impossible to predict with England um, at the moment what they're going to do at a major tournament. Obviously, we've got a very young squad, um, not many caps other than Joe Hart and Gary Cahill. Um, You know, they could go far. They could get to a quarters. I don't think they'll go beyond that, given that um, it looks like Brazil and Germany await them at that stage. And I don't think England have ever beaten one of the top nations at a World Cup away from home. So um, that's probably the the best that they can hope for. Hi, Ben. Um, Did you manage to speak to anyone from the Panama or kind of Tunisian ranks to see what they thought of the draw? Because I'd imagine... It's all well and good us thinking that we've got a great draw, but I'd actually imagine that the rest of our group think that they've got quite a good draw getting us too. 
I didn't speak to them personally, but I've read some of the comments that they've said. Um, it's interesting that the Panama coach was the coach of Colombia when England played Colombia in the 98 World Cup. I'm sure we all remember the famous David Beckham free kick. I think that was actually his first goal for England as well. Um, so obviously a vastly experienced manager who will be very familiar with England and with English football. Um, Tunisia as well, you know, they are no mugs. Um, they came through qualifying well. And you just had to look back at 2014. And actually, the World Cup now, the finals at least, really, there are no easy teams, maybe barring one or two. Um, and any team really is capable of, of frustrating another side. But we've been here before, haven't we? In 2000, I mean, I, I went out in 2010 to South Africa and, you know, we thought we had a great group and we, we got through the group, but it was awful to watch. Um, and this has a lot of echoes of that, that we're going to be playing two teams who are just going to pile men behind the ball and try and frustrate us. And qualifying has actually shown that we don't do particularly well against that. I mean, we do tend to end up winning the games, but they're awful to watch. And we don't take these teams apart who just sit back. We actually do a bit better against the teams who, who try and play. I agree with that. I think we don't have the players to do that. So I'll pick one player out who might be the the key to unlocking a, a pack defence, and that would be Adam Lalana. He has mm. the, the game intelligence. He has the awareness. He he sees things in front of him as they're happening. There are too many players in the England squad, particularly in attacking um, positions, who seem to play by numbers. And um, if then things aren't going their way with the way that they usually play, then they don't appear to be capable of, of sort of adapting. And Lalana is the one player who can. And I think if England are going to do anything in Russia, it's absolutely crucial that he plays and he's fit and informed. A little bit harsh on Sterling, I think there, Ben. He's showing the hallmarks of having uh, the ability to take a game by the scruff of the neck at the highest level. Do you think we're at a stage as a country where we'd find a decent group stage performance and a round of 16 win acceptable before going out to someone like Brazil? 100%. You've got to think back to when was the last time we got that far. You know, Euro 2004 quarterfinal. Um, so what, 14 years it would be um, by the time next summer that England did that. And you know, we were complaining back then that that simply wasn't good enough with the so-called golden generation that we had. But I'm telling you what, England fans would absolutely buy, uh, snatch your hand off um, if you were to offer in the quarterfinal in Russia next mm. year. Quarters as well in 2006, but we won't uh, speak about that sad ah, course, game against uh, Portugal. I've got uh, very traumatic memories of confidently predicting we were due a penalty shootout when, uh, when I was watching that. A hooligan invasion of the draw was always pretty unlikely, Ben, but it, it did seem to go off without a hitch at the Kremlin. Do you think we'll be saying the same after the end of the tournament? There will be issues there. It's, it's impossible to police a country as big as Russia, um, put it into complete lockdown and, and keep all the nutters away. But we're not looking at a Marseille situation. England fans will not travel in anywhere near the numbers that they did at the Euros. Many of the troublemakers won't go either um, and also I think Russian troublemakers will be kept in check to a large extent but I don't think you can rule out you know isolated pockets of incidents um, while over there. And what did you make of vocal critic of FIFA Gary Lineker presenting the draw Ben? Well I actually interviewed Gary um, along with some other national newspaper journalists um, a few days before um, the draw took place and he put up what he considered to be a good defence, saying that um, you know, Seth Blatter had gone. Pretty much everybody, I think there's only one left now from the, the, the crooked vote from uh, 
2010 that gave the World Cup to Russia and Qatar. But I think what Gary's missing is that actually there are things within FIFA that are still a major issue. Um, Gianni Infantino basically managed to manoeuvre the heads of the ethics committees out of their jobs earlier this summer. We understand that they were seriously looking at Vitaly Mutko, the uh, head of the Russian organising committee at that stage, and that effectively sort of killed that investigation or or certainly postponed it um, for a significant period of time. And there there are things that are happening at FIFA and both um, and and at the Russia organising committee that I think if Gary had looked deeply enough, um, he may well have not said some of the things he said about how FIFA's changed. Good joke about Diego Maradona there, wasn't it? You've got to give him that. Well, he actually told us that he had that joke planned when we saw him on oh, the Monday. Yeah, so. Killed don't, him. Don't take us behind the curtain, Ben. <laughs> Thanks very much, Ben. You're welcome. Here's your hero of the week and we turn to our friends in Italia for some wonderful news. Syria as Benevento have their first point of the season. They hosted AC Milan, now managed by Gennaro Gattuso, and were trailing 2-1 going into second half stoppage time when they won a free kick out wide 40 yards from goal. Goalkeeper and our hero Alberto Brignoli rushed up and scored a remarkable diving header to equalise and give his side the all-important first point of the season. Benevento now just nine points off safety. Matt, which goalkeeper do you think would do the best job as an outfield player? Um, I think we've got to go for Claudio Bravo, haven't we? He doesn't like saving the ball. He doesn't like catching it, as we saw last season. So... You'd imagine that he uh, he's desperate to kind of play outfield. That's that's all he seemed good for last season. Good with his feet, terrible with his hands. So I would like to see him given a run in the outfield City team at some point. This is a question from the past because it doesn't matter now that you get seven substitutes. But I could never understand why more teams didn't have the Lucas Radaby option in the 90s where there weren't as many subs and you had an outfield player that could go in goal. Yeah, I've, I've seen a few. I mean, I... I I think I've seen David Platt playing goal for Villa back in the day. Funnily enough, um, Henry Lansbury, um, I can't remember which club it was for. He was at Arsenal for a while and then he went to Forest. Actually, no, it was for England under-21s. He went in goal for England under-21s for sure and did really well. He's actually known as being a very good goalkeeper. There's a a few who can do that way around. Um, It's harder to to turn it around, as we're saying, and and think of a goalkeeper who do well out. I mean, Schmeichel used to score a few goals, didn't he? He used to go up for the corners and score a few, but I'm not sure he'd be technically very good. No, we all remember the disastrous David James experiment. <laughs> yes. yes, quite, when, when Stuart Pearce put him up front. I was thinking about that today with West Ham at Manchester City and Stuart Pearce on the bench again, that uh, the City fans probably remembered him for putting David James on as a, a substitute playing up front. And I'm sure there was a striker on the bench who he overlooked to put him up front. Well, perhaps, that Joe, perhaps that's Joe Hart's future at West Ham? <laughs> perhaps. Time is up for another Total Football, but we will be back again next week. Same time, same place, well in time for your Monday morning commute. If you desire contact with me, just head to at Tom with an H Gibbs on Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and rate us on iTunes. We value and appreciate every single star. You're listening to our theme tune, Write the Relation by Polvo. Head to MergeRecords.com to buy their music. Thanks to Abby Patterson on the buttons and thanks to you for your company. I'll talk to you again soon. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast, in association with Lion Trust, specialist fund managers. New to Telegraph Sport and Your Ears is a brand new podcast celebrating England versus Australia. 
Ashes to Ashes reflects on one of the biggest rivalries in sport with exclusive interviews including Jeffrey Boycott, Jason Gillespie, Michael Vaughan and many more. Just head to your nearest podcasting service and click play. Simple, just like working out Duckworth Lewis.